Welcome to the Run Strong Podcast, episode 121, and welcome back to the United Arab Emirates, Rob Jones. Good afternoon, Tom Walker. You've been in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I have, first time visitor. I was watching it on the Instagram. You look like mm-hmm. you had a great time over there. Really, really good time. Really yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, thoroughly. we were there racing Eco Trail Alula. Um, now, were you racing or were you just having a jolly? The, well, the, ga- the game plan was to Come go on. and just have a really good time. That was achieved in bucketfuls. And uh, towards 50, 60, 55 kilometers, somebody told us that apparently we were in third position, joint third, because three of us were running together. And so from that point on, we thought, okay, let's have a crack and see if we can catch second. And we did. And then we held hands and crossed the finish line in second. <laughs> it did culminate with three of you holding hands, which, you know, maybe you won't regret that from time. But when I make the hundredth joke of it this week, you I may. I think we're already on about 70, 70 you times. May. You may. Me and Skinny messaged each other and said, did they hold hands crossing the line? And we did. They did. Which is cool. I mean, I wanted to see a full sprint out for the line, to be honest. <laughs> I would have lost. <laughs> Well, you then you would have filmed it, you know, and at least that would have been a bit, you know, cooler. But there we go. We'll hold hands and, and cross the line. It's all good. Mm. We, we'd worked together. We'd actually run together since the beginning. So it felt like a, a fitting end to the day's adventures. I mean, it was a strange day, mate. Italy beat Wales. Uh, <laughs> France have got a grand slam. It was all, it was all very strange. It's all wrong. So it's all wrong. We'll Something's not right. We'll go with it. Mate, how, um, how was the race in terms of your expectations for terrain and maybe so, shoe choice? <clears throat> interesting, actually. I, I went in thinking there'd be a lot more sand than there was. Um, there was a lot more trail, actually, and a lot more mountains, especially in the first 40 kilometers. So I really, really enjoyed that bit. Really enjoyed it. On the course, apart from litter that was left by runners, that there was a 50 on the, sorry, on the first 40 kilometers it was only the only the 80k runners ran that section so it was litterless there was nothing it was pristine um when we got onto the section that joined up with the 50k route you could see gel wrappers water bottles just stuff that people had dropped out of pure laziness and that spoiled it and that was really the only litter that we saw the rock formations were stunning um sand was stunning the course was fantastic the locals were really friendly i would for a race that's so close to us here, I would highly recommend it. Brilliant. One downside, perhaps, is that the finish line finish line setup was not as it should have been. We were the obviously the second bunch to finish. Um, there was no cold water, so mm. anyone that came in later on would have really, really struggled. There were no food trucks water. and things, but no, no yeah, hot water. Celebrate other than that. Tea. Yeah, the day was the day was fantastic. Had a really good race. Nutrition was good. good. Got some stats actually. I have stats. I can tell you some stats. Well, the first stat I want to know is because this podcast is brought to you by Hoka, mm. our shoe friends. Yes. I want to know what you ran in and were you happy? I ran in the Hoka Challenger. Um, I didn't, I opted for no gaiters. It was, the sand was fairly hard, but there were sections of sand that were soft. I didn't get, I think I emptied my shoes once because there was a tiny little stone in there and I could just feel it. Um, other than that, the shoes were an absolute dream. No hot spots, no blisters, Ooh. no rub points. And that's with sand, stones, dust, um, no toenails falling off, nothing. It's superb. my feet are absolutely superb. So highly recommend those shoes for that terrain. 
definitely beautiful choice. give us your other stats then well the stats you want so i could tell you what i fueled with i actually have this written down because i was just doing the total for breakfast i had a cup of oats scoop of protein cup of blueberries two peanut two tablespoons of peanut butter and some almond milk two black coffees and then on the course for eight and a half hours of running i had precision hydration 30 gram carbohydrate powder times two another partner of the show use code runstrong 22 at checkout website there's (laughs) i had six stealth gels uh, one orange, two dates, a superfood bar, and half a pack of Ritz crackers. Mm. So for a total of about 230 grams of carbohydrate, it's probably not enough, but the intensity that we're running, it was good. No. 30 grams. <clears throat> two, yeah, 230. So what's that give you per hour? <laughs> well, divide by eight and a half and not a lot. <laughs> yeah, what is it? 230... Oh, this is a great podcast. Everyone's listening in silence. About about 8.5, 27 grams an hour. Mm. You won't be doing Iron Man in that. You won't be doing Iron Man in that. Actually, it's actually funny for, for, a, for an ultra endurance event mm. running, because, you, you know, your heart rate was pretty much zone one, two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sounds like pretty bang on. Yeah, the average pace was 622. We were running anywhere between 415 and five minutes a K really. And then the 622 was just done from the aid stations and the hiking up the many climbs that we didn't expect. So yeah, I was very happy with how nutrition went. Good. Easy. Easy. Shall we get on with today's guest? Yeah, let's do it. Today's show is, is going to be a great one. Actually, we had Shane Benzi with us here in Dubai uh, last week or maybe the week before. Depends when you're listening to this, but uh, early or middle of March 2022, to be specific. And Shane is a, he, I think he calls himself a researcher by trade, which, which I would agree with, with uh, if you listen to him speak, because this guy just collects data and watches everything around him. But in particular, he's focused on running over the past few years. And he wrote a book you might know called Running with the Kenyans. The book is absolute can open your mind to what how or how the kenyans run but also how you can apply some of what the kenyans do into your own run training and that is why it's such a popular book amongst runners and why we got shane out to dubai with us rob's doing something at me oh it's not called running with the kenyans it's the lost art of running i'm thinking of Anne Howard. Yeah. <laughs> what's his like, name finn yeah <laughs> sorry the lost art of running we won't bleep that out um but it talks a lot about the Kenyans and spending time in, in Kenya. That's why I was thinking about it. Um, and yeah, it's such a, you can take a lot of the takeaways from the book and, and apply it into your own training. And, and that's why we had Shane out. Um, he mm. did a seminar at the gym for our clients and he did one for the next day for the coaches as well. And the clients one, I know he did a lot of filming with them and did a lot of practical coaching. And with the coaches, it was more of a discussion and it was just a very interesting, what do we do? Four hours? We four sat hours, room yeah. four hours and just chatted away of what he believes to be the key things that runners need to do. And then from a coach's perspective, how we can integrate that into our runners training and what we thought. And it was very, very interesting. And so we have Shane on the show today to help you guys, the listeners, to understand a little bit more about his methodologies and what he is seeing within the running world, not just within the Kenyans. Can't believe I got that book title wrong. 
But uh, I'll put that book in the show notes for you guys to go and see The Lost Art of Running, not Running yeah. with the Canaan. Although Running with the Canaan is also another very good book. It's also a very, very good book, that. to be fair, but it's not it's not the one he wrote. <laughs> uh, what's it, uh, Ad Harrod or something that guy's name is. Yeah, also very Ad Harrod Finn. Guy. That's it. Ad Harrod Finn is the guy that wrote that one, Lost Dead. So without further ado, here is Shane Benzie. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Now, I've already uh, introduced you with the wrong book, which Rob Jones is not going to let me live down. Um, but we've got you here now. And even better is you're standing outside in a field. Absolutely. A famous running trail in the UK. And it's just, it's brilliant. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice, fresh morning here. So yeah, I was lucky enough to be uh, with you guys in uh, Dubai last week and was kind of getting used to that heat. So a bit of a bit of a rude awakening this morning. But and Shane, I, I accidentally introduced you as the guy who wrote the Running with the Kenyans, which I, I know is not right. It's the lost art of running. But you spent a lot of time in Kenya, Ethiopia, basically in North Africa area. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do in that specific area and basically why we've got you on the show. What makes you the guy who knows what he's talking about? OK, well, uh, well, hopefully I am. So thank you for that. You've, uh, you've made a bit of a comeback from giving me the wrong book. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so my, my journey really started for me as a, as a runner myself, as an ultra runner. And, uh, you know, I had two big challenges with my running. One was that I was constantly getting injured. I just seemed to be moving from sort of injury to niggle to injury. And then my other problem was I just didn't seem to be getting any better. Um, so, you know, and I was kind of ticking all the boxes. I was trying to get super fit cardiovascularly, getting very strong, buying all the kit, doing everything that I could but just didn't really seem to escape these injuries or, or perform any better. So I kind of went on a journey myself to find a better way for me to run because I started to narrow it down to perhaps it's the way I'm actually running, what, the way I'm actually moving. Um, so I kind of went on my own journey to do that and got really excited about that and, and, and had far more questions and answers really. And um, and at the time I, I had a business and I'd sold, I sold the business and I thought, right, this is what I want to do. So I went off actually to the US um, and did some stuff out there and, and became a coach. So I qualified as a running coach out in the US, came back, started to coach, which was great. But again, still had lots of big questions, lots of big bits missing um, when I was working with runners. So I kind of thought, right, where are the best runners in the world? I'm going to go and find the best runners in the world and I'm going to see what makes them good. And uh, I think they're pretty good in Ethiopia and Kenya and Uganda. So uh, I kind of just jumped on a plane and went out there with no real introductions or anything really organized. Ethiopia was my first uh, trip and kind of landed there and just started to watch runners and just started to watch the way that they were moving. That must have been, I don't know, you must have just not known where to start. Absolutely. That was it. I didn't. And I'd, I'd actually seen a, uh, a short piece on CNN uh, news channel about this amazing coach in Ethiopia in a place, Bikoji. Coach Senteo was his name. And Bikoji is a tiny little town up in the Rift, up in the Rift Valley at altitude in uh, Ethiopia with about 15,000 people living in that town. But this, uh, this coach, this running coach, had brought through some amazing runners through the youngsters from this town. Tirinesh Debarba and Bekele are two of them. Uh, but they produced many world record holders, Olympic champions, world championship medalists. And so 
I'd heard about him. So yeah, I kind of just went out there to that little town and uh, just to see if, what I could see. And I kind of hung around for a while until they kind of felt sorry for me, I think, and kind of called me over and uh, wanted to know what the Mazungu was up to, as they would call us. <laughs> and, uh, and I ended up being there for about a month and uh, kind of spent a lot of time there just watching them, uh, shadowing them, doing lots of video and stuff. And what I was seeing there was this amazing movement, which was almost kind of like synergistic and fluid and connected. And I guess elastic, elastic is the word I always use. And so I left there kind of thinking, right, what is this movement? Because surely we've all got the same bits, but actually they, 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 these men and women are moving in a completely different way to us. So I got back to the UK after about being out there for about a month, jumped onto the internet, probably Googled something like elastic runner or something like that. And then started my kind of journey as a researcher to try and find out why they were moving in this elastic way. Brilliant. I think the way you went through the journey is possibly the reason why you're so connected with it and, and teach, the, teach it the way that you do, because you don't seem to have any pre, you, you haven't got a, a, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but you're not selling really anything. You didn't have any pre uh, like conceived expectations. You don't have a, like a narrative that you want to run with. You literally just turned up on their doorstep and was like, okay, I'm ready to see what it is that you do. Yeah, I was an open book, a sponge, just, yeah, show me, what is it, what is it, what is it that makes you amazing? And there were lots of things. I mean, this this beautiful elastic movement is is definitely one of them. Um, and there's things like, you know, uh, growing up at altitude, growing up in bare feet, genetics, lots of things. And actually the power of the group. I would actually say the power of the group is the biggest one of all, actually. Yeah. This is going to jump straight into a... a pretty big question for myself which I thought of um actually after our talk when you when you spoke to us uh last week when we talk about genetics and we talk about nature versus nurture with these guys because a lot of people are going to be listening thinking okay yeah but I, I'm not uh North African and I don't have the genetics these guys have so can I learn to run like these guys when we look at nature versus nurture what do we define as nature and what do we define as nurture because okay. Yeah, you're okay. You're not born with running genetics per se. You, you have, there's a few that will help you and, and a few uh, combinations, if you like, that, that make people better with endurance or being able to, you know, utilize fatty acids better and have stronger tendons and things like that's fine. But mm. is nature, if we go and live with the, let's say the Ethiopians for, for three years, is that enough of nurture to help us to run like them? Or does it need to be literally born in one of these camps and then does that make it nature or does that make it nurture what do you define them as yeah, so really it's a really good question so i think the two the two big uh things the two big influences i've seen um on our movement there are many of them but the two big ones are and if we look at how the africans are and, and, and how we are in the western world two big differences are we our perception of our movement and how we live our everyday lives. So I talk a lot about this concept of tensegrity when I'm when I'm coaching, which is essentially your bones are the 206 bones that are your skeleton are essentially free flowing in a sea of elasticity created by your tendons and your ligaments and your myofascia. And so when you run, actually your skeleton is free flowing in this sea of elasticity. Every single bone in your body sits in its own little elastic trampoline. But the sea of tension that you run with in your body the posture, the sea of tension you have when you run dynamically 
It's only you're going to be created in your everyday movements. Okay. So in the Western world, we tend to sit a lot and we tend to be sat in front of some, a box, yeah, a computer or an iPad or whatever it is, whatever jobs we do. And even coaches like yourselves, I'm sure we'll find many, when you're working with, uh, with runners and, and athletes, you're sat in front of a box. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a big challenge because that really affects and inhibits the sea of tension in our body. So that's definitely a nurture thing without a doubt. We are our environment without a doubt. And so that we can, we can definitely influence and definitely change. And the, the exciting thing about the tendons and ligaments and myofascia in our body that creates this sea of tension, it's constantly rejuvenating and re-architecting itself based on how you kind of break it down or how you spend your life. Now, for a young man like yourself, your elastic system, your fascial system in seven months has re-architected, re remodeled, rechanged, except for the Achilles tendon, which is about 15 months. So actually, if you went out to um, uh, Iten and spent time in Iten and uh, lived the life of the athletes and spent the day the, the way that they do, or if you went and stayed with tribes and indigenous people like I do all around the world, if you did that for a year, after a year, that sea of tension in your body has re-architected itself. And that's constantly happening. So that you can affect pretty quickly. And then there's the perception of movement. Well, again, we're a product of our environment. And in the Western world, our perception of our movement has been, our movement's been explained to us by, by biomechanics, essentially, okay? But I'm not so sure that we explain the movement to each other in the right way. I think things are, cha should be, I think things are changing. There should be almost a richer vocabulary to describe our movement. And so, you know, biomechanics wouldn't suggest that our, skeleton free flows in a sea of tension and you know and and, and so people in uh, in africa in northern africa and in, in in eastern africa and the tribes and indigenous people they haven't really been introduced to biomechanics so they don't really have that perception of their movement they don't have the perception of the skeleton being a structure in their body they just move but actually both of these big things are changing in east africa because now People have the internet. So now they are being bombarded with visions of the skeleton stood up as a structure. Um, and they are starting to watch TV, spend time on their phones. Well, anybody who spends time on their phone spends the time with their hand in front of them and their head down looking at the phone. So they're immediately starting to drop into that Western style posture because they're starting to live many of the influences of their life that, that we are. So. So Sorry. I was going to say, um, didn't you look at, you looked at rural uh, athletes versus city athletes in Africa as well, didn't you? And you noticed some, some stark differences between, between the two. Yeah. So, so what, so once I'd spent time in Ethiopia and Bekoji with amazing athletes, and by this time I was lucky enough to spend time with world record holders. So that, that was fantastic. But then you start to think, okay, well, yeah, are, you know, are these athletes amazing because they're East African or what, what is it? So I stayed in East Africa, but went to Uganda spent some time in Uganda and looked at um, runners and just you know, people going about their everyday lives in cities like, Masa um, like Tebe and Kampala, very busy cities, people working at desks, eating fast food, living that kind of city life. And then maybe three hours outside of those cities in a, in a little town called Masaka, uh, which is very rural. I was looking at people and their movement and their, and their habits. And so, you know, some of these people could 
could even be related because it's only three hours away. And the, the difference was astonishing. Absolutely. It's like being on a different planet. Absolutely astonishing. The people that were living out more in the rural areas who were doing kind of jobs that were labor orientated jobs had a completely different physique and a completely different movement pattern um, to the people that were sat at desks all day um, eating fast food and, and working on a computer. So and that, that's really exciting because, of course, that's kind of what we all want to hear is that we can take ownership of our nurture and do something with it yes we might not have the genetics of an east africa we might not have come from the kelogen tribe and and have those genetics but we don't need those we can still maximize our potential by creating our nurture and that's also by adopting the power of the group as well which i know you guys do a lot of where you are so it certainly where we are lots of lots of jobs are desk jobs they're sitting down people are living that second lifestyle that you described there and we know it's it's very easy to get from, if you like, an athlete lifestyle and negate down to sit in front of Netflix, a poor posture, play on your phone. But how hard or how easy is it? I'd rather you answer easy, but to get from that lifestyle back up to where we should be back to more of our genetic potential. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy for me to stand here in a field kind of saying that people should <laughs> And stuff like, you know, it's it's a fact of life, isn't it? We know a lot of us have to be in front of a computer uh, working. But, you know, I'm, you know, we're in, you know, we're looking at each other now through a, I'm in an iPad and you may well be a computer, but I'm actually stood looking at you in uh, through my iPad. And so if you have a desk job, then actually, if you were to be stood at your desk, that can make a huge difference to everything that you're doing. If you were stood at your desk, on what I would call tripod feet with a nice lengthened spine, a neutral pelvis with an engaged core, eye line on the computer as you're working, breathing into the bottom third of your lungs. You're training for nine hours because the sea of tension you're gonna take out in your run this evening is gonna be based on that. So we don't have to give up our jobs and uh, you know become full-time athletes or, or win the lottery to, to, to have to take ownership of this stuff we can actually start to adapt our everyday life. And that is a great way, a huge way of doing it straight away. Shane, you mentioned uh, you mentioned it there, your tripod landing, which you've become pretty well known for. Um, some people that will, they'll know if they've read the book and others won't have a clue what you're talking about. Like you've only got two legs, you know, how do we do that? What do you mean by tripod landing and how can people understand it? Okay, so so I think for everybody listening, well, for all of us, when it comes to running, we should, or any sport actually, we should be thinking of our foot as the, think of it as the interface between us and the ground, okay? The way our foot lands and the way our foot leaves the ground has a huge impact and influence on the efficiency of our movement. If we land the foot correctly, it creates stability. If we land the foot correctly, the, two, the quarter of a million nerve endings on the bottom of the foot send huge amounts of information up into the body, giving us our spatial awareness, perceived rate of exertion, understanding how hard we hit the ground and what the ground feels like. If we land the foot correctly, the arch of the foot gives our foot a huge amount of strength. And also we bring in this dome effect of the foot, which spreads the impact. So when, when everyone listening here, when they go out for a run, the next time they go out for a run, when their foot hits the ground, They've actually got two and a half times their body weight coming back at them. Yeah, Newton's third law. Any action is met by an equal and opposite. So when the foot hits the ground, you've got two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. The dome shape of the foot, should you land correctly, 
spreads and dissipates that impact at source long before it gets to the first major joint in the body. So landing the foot well gives you stability, elasticity, proprioception, dissipation of impact and strength. And the tripod landing that we're actually looking for to create that, if you imagine the bottom of your foot, if you had a point on the calcaneus, on the heel of your foot, and then you drew a line up to the ball underneath the big toe, and then across to the little toe, where if there was a ball under the little toe, it would be there, and then join back down to the heel again. So basically, a flat landing, if you like. Yep, so a tripod landing is essentially a flat or a full foot landing, not on the heel and not on the forefoot, the whole of the foot comes down at the same time, which I think is pretty counterintuitive because I don't think that sounds very elastic and flat footed has almost got this kind of stigma attached to it. Um, but that's what a human foot, that's how a human foot acts and works best if you land it on that tripod. And what do we, what do we, uh, so that feels like a one, you almost feel like you're not slapping the floor, but it feels a very direct contact with the, and it, it's hard to feel because you're feeling it across your whole foot. Like you said, the dome effect, you, yeah. you should be getting a whole foot feeling with it. And obviously you don't have much, uh, you really don't have any nerves in your heel. So it's quite hard to hear that, that heel, um, landing at the same time as your forefoot. So you use a lot of video and you use a lot of um, auditive feedback as well, don't you? Just obviously video feedback is very simple. Set up a camera or someone else to film you and have a look at how your foot strikes the ground. But what are we listening for when we're running? So, so the first thing, yeah, so you're absolutely right. You know, filming each other is incredibly, you could read 10 books on running, watch 20 YouTube channels and, 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 and listen to loads of podcasts. 10 seconds of filming, you'll learn so much about yourself. So everyone should body up and get out there and do that, definitely. I think with, with the sound of the footfall, there's a, there's a couple of things you're looking. So you're right, you can't really feel the heel because there are no ner nerves on the calcaneus. The nerve network is very dense on the forefoot. Now, with runners, uh, pretty much every runner that's out there has a stabilizing leg. And a, and, a, and a manipulating or a probing leg, as I would call it. So the probing leg, the manipulating leg, that's the leg that if you were to kick a football with or kick a can with, you know, it's the, it's the leg that you would do your kicking action with. That's your manipulating, your probing leg. And then the other leg is your stabilizing leg. That's the one that holds you upright and takes your weight while you're doing the clever thing of kicking. Now, when we're running, very often you will see people running almost with a uh, almost a, a kind of a skipping action where they will stabilize, leap, stabilize, leap, stabilize, leap. So they want to get all of their weight onto their stabilizing leg. And that's the leg that pushes them up again. Then they land on their non-stabilizing leg and then can't wait to get back onto their stabilizing leg again. You really, it's really notable, noticeable when you see runners running downhill. You almost see them skip down the hill because they're very much on their stabilizing side. So actually that's very inefficient. It's how a human is designed to move but of course, we're trying to, in the name of human performance, we're trying to iron out those idiosyncrasies that humans come with. So when you're looking, when you're listening to your footfall, we don't want to hear boom, 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 boom. We want to hear boom, 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 boom. That, you know, the sound, the, the distance, the time between each footfall should sound the same, not one and then another one quickly, one and then another one quickly. So that once people, you would never know you were doing it, but once you actually lock into it, you can really start to see it. And people who are looking at ground contact times will often be able to see the, the difference. 
And is it is it fair to say that normally on a stabilizing leg, you're probably going to be heel striking a little more and on your manipulative leg, because you want to get off it quicker, you're going to be more up towards the front of your foot for a faster action. Actually, interesting. I mean, it varies, but if I had of the 4,000, over 4,000 runners now that I've analyzed with video, if I had to kind of create a an average runner, if you like, generally, generally the stabilizing leg will come down early and the probing will, and, and more likely to land on a tripod, the probing manipulating leg is the one that's going to reach out and actually lead with a heel. Ah. Because if your listeners think about this, so the next time they go out for a run, if they're running and they need to jump over something or avoid something, they will almost certainly, even if they have to do a funny little dance, will get into a position where their stabilizing leg is the leg that will push them over, I was going to say a puddle, then you know, guys don't even know what a puddle is, um, over a rock or a log or something like that. And then they will lead with their manipulating leg. And that's the one that's more likely to land on a heel. So that's normally the pattern that you see. Interesting. Okay. And then let's make it really practical. Let's say we're hearing this um, bum bum type of, well, more like a, sounds like a heartbeat, doesn't it? Um, but yeah. a, a sort of a, an uneven um, noise in your landing. How do we correct it? So what we're trying, what we essentially want to do, what, once you, right, if you can, if you can body sense and drill down into your body and body sense and, and maybe hear that you're doing this, boom, 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 then really it's as simple as in the early stages, just starting to think about pushing off with both feet, even. Good running is all about balance and symmetry in the body. Okay, you want to create as much balance and symmetry in the body. Both arms should do the same work as each other and both legs should do the same work as each other. So start to think about the, your non-stabilizing leg pushing off with the same amount of effort as the stabilizing leg. And then try and do that first rather than just trying to adjust to the sound because it's, it sounds a bit like data. You wouldn't want to change your movement just to get the sound right because that might have you moving in a pretty strange way. Just like if you've got a, a left-right imbalance on your, um, on your watch, you wouldn't want to run moving in a, a very strange way just to even the data up. We want to try and get the movement good and then see the difference in the data. So it's very much about thinking about pushing off with even effort with both legs and practice when you're running. If you're coming up to something and you need to negotiate it and jump over it, practice pushing off with your non-stabilizing leg it's going to feel really strange at first because you're not going to want to do it but we can rewrite that that movement software by practicing that what is your view obviously lo lots of this is learning how you feel when you run what's your view then on the different <laughs> categories of shoe choice that there is out there now from barefoot all the way up to super soft cushion shoes all the way up to carbons what do you think of the market at the minute? Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, so my my what I what I'm trying to do with my work is get people as excited as I possibly can about their foot. Okay, yeah. like I say, the foot is the is the interface between us and the ground. It's an ingenious thing, possibly the most the cleverest thing in the animal kingdom because it was the very clever foot that we developed and the ability to stand tall and get elastic that meant that we could develop the way we have, you know, cover more distances, catch, catch more food, get bigger brains. It was how we developed on the back of being able to stand tall and get a clever foot. So I think the last thing we should be doing is, is wrapping it in pieces of rubber that tell this incredibly clever foot what to do. 
So the way I see it is we should get that tripod landing, we should get the foot doing all the things that the interface should do. And then our, and then our footwear choice should be about putting the foot into something that will allow the foot to make all of those movements and do what it needs to do, but allow it to interact with the environment it's moving through. Because we can't run bare feet. We're not, we're not, we're not that animal anymore. We need, we need trainers on. But those trainers should be allowing us to stick to rock or negotiate mud or, 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 or move on, on tarmac. So the trainers should be allowing us to move through the environment and interact with it. But they shouldn't be creating spring for us or stability or cushioning. Mm. You know, everything the trainer manufacturers are trying to create is essentially what the human foot has. Uh, now, you could run beautifully in a pair of Wellington boots, or you could run really badly in heel strike in a pair of 10,000 pound trainers. A pair of trainers isn't going to make your interface work the way that it should. It's, it's not going to do that. So my thought process is spend the time to move well and use the foot well, and then pick the trainers that you want to be able to interact with that environment. I think what you do want from a pair of trainers is a nice wide toe cap because the human foot wants to splay by up to 15% when it lands. So a nice wide toe cap is really good. Because there are a quarter of a million nerve endings on the bottom of the foot, you would have to ask yourself, how much rubber do you want to put underneath your foot and between your foot and the ground? And I don't think we should go minimalist. I really don't think that we should go minimalist, but we would have to ask ourselves that question. And if there are bits of carbon in the soles of our trainers, what's that doing to our proprioception? That's good. That could really hamper it. So we have to ask ourselves that question. And then I think the other thing to start to think about is the drop of your trainers. So by the drop of the trainers, we're talking about high, how high the heel is to the toe. Now that can be zero or it can be as much as 14, I think 14 mils as high as I've seen. So we'd have to ask ourselves how much of a drop we would want on our trainers. If the drop is too high, that can actually um, compromise our posture. Because if you think about it, if, if your heel is much higher than your toes, to be in that position, you've got to slightly arch your back to be able to stand in that position. To arch your back, you have to drop your pelvis into an anterior tilt. And if you drop your pelvis into an, into an anterior tilt, tilted forward, that disengages your core. So by putting on a very high drop pair of trainers, you are potentially challenging your posture. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we should all go to zero drop straight away because then that's, we're not used to that and that can be a real challenge as well. I think uh, anecdotally with, with what you're saying there, I uh, wear day-to-day -day like a zero drop, uh, very flat shoe. Um, but even then, after, especially after, we, after you came and spoke to us and, and it gave me a reminder of, okay, how am I standing normally? How am I walking? And I would find myself standing with my right foot slightly turned out with all my weight going through my big toe. And, and it just reminded me that, wait a minute, I'm wearing these shoes to feel the ground more. And I'm actually now feeling that I'm standing in a really horrible position. So I spent the whole of last week just trying to get my right foot a little bit straighter under my hip. And it changed the way my posture felt. You know, I was walking around the supermarket like, I feel so much better like this. And I just, it, I completely lost track of it because it hadn't been, I hadn't been questioned on it for, for a long time. And so I would, and, I, and now I've set up ways of reminding myself, just think of my posture. Like I have some here on my desk, a note that just says posture. I have one. Um, a note on my phone that comes up 
uh, like at 10 a.m. every day just says posture. And so the way that you questioned it was brilliant and it was such good timing. And I think that just because you might wear a minimalist shoe, you can still stand like absolute crap and it won't help you in the slightest the same way you can buy a carbon shoe and, you, and you're still going to run like crap. Completely. And now, now, and when I, when I was talking earlier about standing at the desk on tripod feet, now, now we kind of know a little bit about what a tripod foot is. What tends to happen with us is when we stand, we tend to stand leaning back slightly, which means we're on just the heel, which is one point of a tripod. And as we know, that one point of the tripod, the heel has no nerve endings on it. So you have no stability on that foot and no idea of your connection with the ground. And because there's no stability or no connection with the ground, we then lock into slightly strange positions by putting all our weight on one hip and put, turning one foot out to try and create the stability that the tripod foot isn't giving us. So it just if we just think about when we're going to be stood of just bringing that upper body slightly over our center of gravity so you can feel the ball of the big toe as well as the heel, that will almost, you will almost feel a little bit exposed and vulnerable because you're going to feel as though you're kind of falling forward. You won't, but it's going to feel like that. And it'll feel strange at first, but now the body can interact with the ground. Those quarter of a million nerve endings, we want them interacting with the ground when you're static as well as when you're moving dynamically so it's huge and and you know i i worked i did some fascinating work with uh, gb diving uh for the olympics uh that, that have been and gone now um and i still work with them um and you know with tom daly and grace reed and you know they those guys they can be on the board six hours a day six days a week and i just work with them on their steps on the board and how they leave the board so even though they're olympians and it's their full-time job, and they are thinking very hard about how they can be the best divers they can be. They will only ever leave the dive board with the sea of tension in their legs, their ankles, and then their feet that they create while they're on their mobile phone or making a cup of tea. You can look at them stood while they're talking to you and then go and film them on the board, and that's the way they're leaving the board. So if that's a challenge for an Olympian, we definitely got that challenge. But we're going back to that nurture thing again. It is it's something you can take control of and actually get pretty excited about. Um, and you've done that and we should we should all be doing that. Absolutely. I get with my with my with my athletes, I get them to put a little red dot just on the on the on the side of the computer. And every time that dot catches their eye, they just think, all oh, right, yeah, can I can I see my, you know, is my head straight as I'm looking into the computer and and, and is my posture good? So it's just those little daily reminders, definitely. I I want to almost take this well it's maybe a bit out there but so you're trying to emphasize almost getting back to complete basics and learning how to move how to stand how to sit how to look at stuff back to complete you know rewrite our DNA our like our, our baseline if you like what's your thoughts on do you think perhaps people are pushing too hard. We're not really maybe designed to run maybe more than 20 kilometers. We haven't evolved quickly enough to, to run, you know, Marathon de Saba, 250K, UTMB, 170K in one go. Um, do you think we're pushing too far beyond our capabilities at the minute? Yeah, we're definitely pushing the envelope on what humans can do. But that has, has a cautionary side to it and also a really exciting side because of course you know humans are great at exploring and, and pushing the boundaries and it's so so you, you I mean you're right so you know we we 
I'm, I get very excited about natural human movement because I kind of firmly believe that if we can tap into the attributes that Mother Nature gave us as a mover, you know, we can maximize our potential. But 15,000 years ago, when we were running around as hunter-gatherers, you know, you're right, we would only have run about a half marathon at about a four-hour marathon pace. And we would have done a lot of walking and actually spent most of our time digging up roots and stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes we have this romantic notion that we are this, this, this kind of species that can run endlessly. And actually, that's not really what we were designed to do at all. So much of what we're doing now has to be about taking natural human movement maximizing that and then turning that into human performance by kind of ironing out all the idiosyncrasies and imbalances that a human comes with both generically as a human and as as an individual so kipchoge didn't run a sub two marathon because he ran like a hunter gatherer he ran a sub two marathon because he harnessed all of the gifts that mother nature gave him as a running species, but then maximize as much potential out of his software, his brain and his hardware, his, his physical body. And that's what allowed him to do it. So he's taken natural human movement and turned it into human performance. And that's what all athletes are trying to do. Even if they don't really think of it in that way, that's what we're doing. We're adapting a very wonky body, stabilizing and probing leg is a great example of that we also have a stabilizing arm and a manipulating arm we're trying to take those uh idiosyncrasies and imbalances and create as much balance and symmetry in the body as we can to create as much performance as we can so but we've got to be careful because we are overloading the body you know injuries come because we either misuse or overuse the soft tissues or or the bones so by running the UTMB, you are overusing because we just weren't designed to do that. So we need to be really careful that we're not misusing as well. Um, and I think the, the way we need to think about it is, and certainly the way I, when I work with athletes is, I just start to try and create running as a movement skill. So rather than just working on the, a big engine um, and relying on that, trying to move in a way where you create as much balance and symmetry in the body as you can and get the posture as good as you can because the more you can do that the more you tap into this elastic energy that we have and the elastic energy in the body it doesn't really want any oxygen or calories it doesn't really produce lactate you know during the event it doesn't really want too much from us when we're recovering yes lots it needs nourishing and hydrating de definitely hydrating but during the events itself, it's as free as it gets. Um, and so we need to adapt our body as best we can to get into those positions to create this, this, this performance. Brilliant. And it's, it's amazing what we can do. I mean, look at what people are doing. You yeah. know, the band getting pushed. I was gonna, I was gonna say, what, what do you classify in your eyes? What do you think the greatest human performance has ever been? Ooh. Do you have one? Ah. Jones with the deep question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Come on, um, Shane. Why haven't we got an answer off the tongue for that one? I know. Well, I mean, I was, I was one, one that's recent, which is very subjective, I guess, is the, the, the Kipchoge sub two. Mm. I was there. So I was working on a documentary there. I'd been very privileged to spend some time with him previous to that, talking about perception of movement and understanding his perception of movement. So I was very keen to be there to, to, a, to do the documentary and to see how he moved. And I think 
to run, you know, and I sort of videoed all the laps and, and, uh, and, and sort of to look for gate fatigue, which is a bit of a fruitless task, to be honest with Kipchoge, because it kind of doesn't really fatigue that much and doesn't really change that much. So I think to run for two hours or just under two hours at that pace and hold the form, I think was absolutely amazing. And I know it doesn't, it, it's, it, that, that isn't actually recognized because of the, you know, because of the drafting and stuff like that. But actually doing it in the way that they did it um, did, you know, did create an advantage by being in this air bubble. But actually, it's also made things incredibly difficult. Head, his head position had to be compromised because he had to be constantly looking down at the laser and at the feet of the runners in front of him. So his posture wasn't the same as it would normally be. And a lot of chaos in front of you constantly with runners dropping in and dropping out. And he would often move to the side, almost set, reset his software himself and then move back in. So, you know, on the face of it, it wasn't recognized as an official uh, time. But I think actually what he dealt with while doing it and running at that pace for that long and holding his form, that's the, that's the best thing I've ever seen. I know it was incredible, absolutely incredible. What's yours? Nice. Uh, recently, I would go Camille Heron. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. I think yep. for for someone to move over that length of time, over that average pace, is just mind blowing. Yeah. Did you see? Um, uh, I don't know if you saw the the Barclay the Barclay marathons. Yeah. So, so I've worked with Jasmine Paris, and uh, so she was the she's the first lady to do the the, the fun run, as they call it, ironically, uh, which is which is three laps. So I think first lady to do that in about ten years, um, and um, absolutely fantastic achievement. And I think you know Jasmine could do some incredible things. I think it would be, it'd be really interesting to watch her in the future because I think so you, when you talk about pushing the boundaries of what somebody can do, I think she's in a do something incredible so um yeah yeah it's, uh, and you, you you see with these people they're often very mentally strong aren't they and it's uh, that's a, a big part of it I, you know i the more and more i coach people the more really i'm just coaching their software their brain and changing the, the perception of their movement rewriting their software and then the hardware the body the physical body just adapts to that change it, it, it it's, it's really all here and it's very rare you come across a good athlete who isn't bodily aware and is able to take uh, instruction and do something with their body and understand what their body's doing. I think, I think that's one of the things that, that makes a really good athlete. And of course, we all want to maximize that ourselves. You don't have to be thinking about breaking a world record or doing you know, something that's you know, running for your country or whatever it might be. Someone who's just getting into running should still be thinking about trying to do it as beautifully as they can with as much balance and with as much synergy as they can and treats it like a skill. You, know, you don't go to a yoga class trying to get a PB. You go to a yoga class because you want to do those movements beautifully, enjoy it and come out maybe slightly better than you went into the class. Same with, you know, martial arts, right? With martial arts, you know, you might, you might get sort of, you know, different belts and different dance and things like that, but you're practicing the art, you're practicing the skill. And I think that's, we should do that more with running. We tend with running, we tend to just stick a pair of trainers on and then just try really hard, um, mm. which of course you have to do. But I think we should bring some elegance and some poise and some beauty in, into the movement as well. Are you still running, Shane? Yeah, so I do. So I run, I mean, I was run this morning. So it is it's absolutely beautiful here this morning. So I, and I knew it was going to be because you can kind of tell. So I was up early this morning and ran through the sunrise, 
So, and I run when I travel. Um, so I don't race anymore, um, but I kind of, uh, yeah, I run wherever I am and probably go out for about an hour at a time, something like that. And uh, yeah, just do it because I, I love it. Sometimes I put equipment on myself and test new technology and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, no, st- still do it, still love it. And I guess you're not running with uh, too much running with regards to your watch or what's happening in terms of your, your physiological data. You're just running and smiling. <laughs> yeah, not always smiling. Sometimes, sometimes I agree with you. We've got some pills here. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I have a fascination with data um, and, uh, you know, what, what one of the, I guess we've all in our lives seen you know, technology is constantly changing in our lives at a rate of knots and things we couldn't do two years ago. Now we can see, you know, when I first started this, everything literally was with the eye. There really wasn't any technology that allowed you to be outside. Everything would have had to have been on a treadmill. And, and I don't work on a treadmill. Everything I do is outside. So over the, you know, over the last decade, the, the, the data that we can enjoy now is amazing. You know, very easily we can see what our, let's say our vertical oscillation is and our stride length is and our ground contact time and our cadence and stuff like that. And so that's really exciting information. And so I do take an interest in that because I think the thing to do, and for your listeners, a lot of your listeners will have this technology. The big thing with data is we shouldn't let it tell us how to run, but it should tell us how we ran. Yeah. And it can actually tell us what we felt because a lot of people say, oh, I don't want any data because I just want to feel my run. You absolutely do want to feel your run. But sometimes data can confirm or deny what it was you felt because your perception of your movement can be very, very different from the, from the actual. That's why video is always really enlightening because you don't always move the way that you think you do. And when you see yourself on video, you think, wow, okay, I didn't realize I did that. Well, data can help you with that as well. So a bit of video and a bit of data can actually enlighten you as to what you did. One bit of advice I would give to everybody is if you're running along and you think, right, you know, what is my vertical oscillation? What is my pace? What is my heart rate? What is my stride length? What is my cadence? What is what anything? Guess before you look. So never just look at your watch. Never even look at your watch and just look at the time. Guess, start to build up a perception of what's going on around you and then confirm it or deny it by the watch. Otherwise, you actually learn nothing. You learn what your pace was by looking at it, but you've got nothing to relate it to next time you want to understand your pace. So never, ever look at any piece of data without having an, a guess based on your perception before you look at it. That, that's an incredibly powerful way of learning and feeling, actually. We, uh, we, <laughs> we went to a speed session once and we took masking tape and we asked everyone to tape up their watches so they, could, <laughs> they couldn't see how fast they were running or what their splits or anything was. And it got, we got a bit of pushback, I'll, I'll be sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good session. Well, and we, we recommended it, our track sessions. The person on the front can know the pace, but the guys behind, they just need to carry, they need to look at the person in front of them's head, the back of their head, and just run and try and get into their rhythm, which, yeah, we've seen some huge benefits for people at, at the track session. I don't think anyone has been negatively impacted by our pace groups that we introduced late last year at, at our track sessions. I, I, I think that's a great way of learning and, and, and you know and, and we're, humans are, are big mimickers so actually you know you once you're slotted into a group 
you start to move in the way that that group moves, you know, physically and even the breathing and everything can, can kind mm. of lock. So you've got to be confident that the people that they're mimicking are moving well, obviously. Um, but I think that's great. And, you know, that's one of, I think that's one of the big challenges we have certainly here in the UK is when you have run clubs and stuff like that, you will tend to put them into maybe three or four different groups, very fast, not so fast, you know, could be quicker. And then, you know, the people who are just starting, but of course the people who are just starting never get to run with the quick guys, the ones who are probably moving really well and don't get to mimic them. Um, and so that's a challenge. Uh, but I know we were talking about this last week with the grid system they have out in the 10 where, mm. you know, running eights with super quick eights and, and not so quick eights, but they're constantly running past each other, behind each other, to the side of each other. So they get to see each other. Um, mimicking is a really big human quality. You know, it's one of the things, you know, we're very good at adapting and, and looking at something and, and, and recreating it. And, uh, and it, it's interesting if you ask Kipchoge, Kipsang or Capruto, all world record holders to list the top 10 things that uh, make, them think that make, make them feel as though they're a good runner actually they would put movement pretty much at the bottom. Now that's a bit disconcerting for me because it's kind of my work, but actually the reason they don't really put movement very high is that they kind of learned it in the group. No one ever really called them over and gave them any technique training. They learned it in the group, it's natural. That means it sticks really well because it's natural. Yeah, so they don't really know that they learned it. So Kipchoge, who we've already cited as I think one of the best movers there is, wouldn't put it high on his list because never really felt as though he learned it. So the group thing is huge. Yeah. And you know what it's like, you get picked up by the group and just, it's like being on a magic carpet sometimes, isn't it? You just mm. get wrong. It's an, it's an incredible thing. Great. Shane, we have taken up quite a lot of your time already. I think Rob's got one more question. He's, open, he's holding your final, book. And then I've I have one last question. question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiz you on something. Oh, no. Okay, so um, let's say I'm a brand new runner. I've picked up your book and I've gone through it. I love it. Which is going to be the best bang for my buck to make improvements to my run economy from foot placement, cadence, stride length, posture, the head, arms, a natural lean, breathing, or the mind? Head. Head. Why? Head, head position, without a doubt. Why? So... Why? First reason is it's very, very easy to change. Very easy to change. So most of us are running with our head down. Okay, mm -hmm. most of us are doing that. Now, so the human head weighs around about five kilos. Yeah, give or take. Some heads are, are bigger than others, but around about five kilos. When the head is up, eye line on the horizon, that's what it weighs. For every inch forward the head comes, it effectively weighs another five kilos. Now the head itself doesn't get heavier. It's a, it's a moments thing in physics, but it essentially means that the, the, the upper neck and the spine is now taking double weighted head if the head is down an inch. If you're looking running at the ground three, and your head is down three inches, you've essentially carrying 20 kilos on your back. Okay, so that's huge. So getting the head up means that the head only weighs a quarter of what it would is if the head was down. Also. If the head is up eye line on the horizon, your vestibular area, your inner ear, that's where a lot of your balance and spatial awareness comes from. Yeah? And as humans, we are designed to be stood upright with our heads up eye line on the horizon, looking for food and not being food. So that's how a human is designed. So our balance and spatial awareness is at its best if the eye line is on the horizon. 
And then the third reason is we have this amazing elastic connective tissue in our body, this fascia stuff that I'm always talking about. It runs continuously from underneath your feet all the way up the body continuously up into the top of the head. So if your head is up, eye line on the horizon, then you are loading this elastic system. So you're creating more elastic recoil in your body. So balance spatial awareness, weight distribution, and this uh, ability to create elastic energy in your body, you can do straight away just by getting your head up. It's absolutely fundamental. And whoever we are when we're running, we are definitely looking to maximize that, whether we're an elite athlete or not. It's huge. Fantastic. Jane, my last question is non-running related. Standing. You, yeah, you're, uh, you've traveled the world. You've worked in not just uh, running in terms of sport. And you have, you, I think you've got probably one of the, the highest experiences of, of working around within movement with athletes of, of anyone out there. What's, um, what would be, let's say, two or three key life lessons that you have learned that you may have got through running but not to do with running so i think this so this everyday this everyday posture thing i think is huge and i think that's for runners or non-runners everybody we need to be more weight bearing throughout the day yeah we definitely need to be more weight bearing throughout the day athlete or non-athlete i think that is absolutely fundamental um and i think what i've learned from uh tribes and indigenous people and athletes that are non maybe non-european is the power of recovery we do too much we're all i think we all do too much in in the western world you know we live in a very voyeuristic kind of world now where everyone can see what everybody else is doing and i think sometimes there's some pressure to do make more and when we're not running then we're yogaing or strength and conditioning or whatever it is we're doing so you know i think what what i what i see a lot of around the world is people see their strength, their, their fitness, their progress coming from what they're doing when they're not actually running. And the, so the recovery is huge. The, the, the running is almost the vehicle to create the fitness, but the fitness happens when you're, when you're lying down, when you're, when you're not doing anything. So I think that's huge. And then the last one, which I, I hear myself talking about all the time, and I think, oh my God, you're talking about it again, but it's the power of the group. I think that, you know, yes, it's great to run around in eights because, you know, it, it's, it carries you and, and you can learn a new movement. But just interacting as a group, being there together as a tribe, helping each other, pushing each other in everything that we do, but then be, being there to put your arm around that person as well. I think that's, that, that, that's big in athletics, but it should also be big in everyday life. And I think the last two years, that's been a challenge for us, hasn't it? Because we've kind of been segregated a little bit. Um, and maybe, maybe we'll just come out of this, hopefully appreciating that group a little bit more and maybe just be a little bit more kinder and supportive to each other because it's huge, I think. Agreed. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Shane, for coming on and sharing sure. with us, you know, what you've learned. And just tell us what, what have we got to look forward to? Another book that I can get the name wrong of? Or... Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and make it a really easy title so that you guys can uh, practice right that would be good yeah no i'm writing i'm writing the second book as we speak so that's really exciting um and uh i'm sort of traveling a lot for that um traveling's just opened now so um i'm actually off to mexico city on saturday uh to work out there with lots of different sports actually uh looking at movement and i'm actually starting a new research project on 
cultural effects on human locomotion. So I, I kind of think that, uh, that how we spend our day uh, physically det determines our sea of tension in our running. And I think our perception of our movement affects it. But actually I'm a big believer that actually cultural effects of our environment or you know, cult the culture that we come from also affects our movement as well. So I'm gonna be looking at uh, in, uh, in Mexico, um, yeah, culture that goes back literally thousands of years to try and, and then bring back, just try and understand how maybe our movement might be affected by that as well. I'm actually absolutely convinced it is when I look at tribes and indigenous people. Um, so, and it'll, the book will also look at neuroplasticity. So an elastic brain for an elastic body. Uh, and yeah, definitely this power of the group thing. Um, and I'm actually, and I'm actually working on a book even past that as well from time. So, so lots of traveling off, I'm off diving with killer whales to, uh, to look at the power of the group when it comes to animals. Uh, so that should be an interesting, uh, thing. Um, yeah. And who, who knows where it will take me. Sounds like it's going to be called the lost art of living. <laughs> Quite possibly. Right. 10%, 10%, 10% if that's the name of the book. <laughs> Or it's called Read This Standing Up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Shane, thank you once again. And have a great time down in Mexico. I really do. appreciate your time. Good. Listen, absolutely my pleasure. And I'll uh, I look forward to seeing you guys again. Yeah, brilliant. Cheers, Shane. Thank Take you. Care. There we go. Hopefully he forgives me for getting the wrong title of his book. Again, The Lost Art of Running is Shane's book. <laughs> I'm tired. Well, like, at least Taper brain, tiredness, you know, all the excuses the, I've got. Yeah, but you've given him the title of the second book, so it's all good. I've, I'm always one for a creative brainstorm, you know? <laughs> so no problem with that. I think I'm already excited to read that one, actually. The way he, he thinks and, you know, like, if you want to learn how much you can learn from saying nothing and just observing then this guy lives it right yeah um actually for for those that are maybe not that technical minded the great thing i love about the book is that it's so it's broken down really well it's put in layman's terms it's very easy to understand and you keep flicking back through because there's so many golden nuggets in there that you can go oh actually i want to go and try that or i need to think about that and it's it's yeah, it's so simplistic. Like whenever I said, what do you think is the biggest bang for your buck? Those are the titles. Those are the chapters. The head is a chapter. Mm. And it's how easy to break it down and just saying the head. All right, what do I need to learn? My head. I'll go look at that chapter. So it's very, yeah. very easy to jump into. It's very applicable. Mm. Good. Mate, when are you buying your standing desk? That's my next question for you. You can see it in the background. That's not high enough, is it? Yeah. Oh, fair enough. And actually, I've got... Oh, here we go. One that I can put on top of the very desk. To make it higher if I like. Nice. I don't know why they got me out of breath. <laughs> you're equipped. You're equipped to stand. I am. Good man. Um, Austria. mate, just uh, I'm I'm away next week. What are you gonna do without me? Are you? All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll figure something out. So right. the show will go on. The show will I go can't on. promise it'll be 45 minutes long or an hour long, but I'll put something together. Don't stress. The lost art of podcasting next <laughs> week. Brilliant. Guys, don't forget the show is brought to you by Hoka. Mm. And you can head to our show notes and you can get on there 
from our friends at Precision Fuel and Hydration, a load of useful resources in terms of articles, uh, sweat test calculators, carbohydrate calculators, and even a chance to book a 20-minute hydration and fueling strategy video consultation with one of their sports scientists. Mm-hmm. Buy the we, shoes, buy the salts, <laughs> buy the fuel. Done. Buy performance. Please. I've also put in there a link to Shane's book, The Lost Art of Running, a journey to rediscover the forgotten essence of human movement. So you can go on there, you can buy from Amazon, and it is a number one bestseller in the category of sport and fitness. Amazing. That is amazing. And I won't be back next week, but Rob Jones will be Yep. with something for your ears. So yep. we will. I will talk to you in two weeks' time, possibly. The people I'll know where you're going. Time. They know where I'm going, going to right? South Africa, the yeah. south of Africa. Yeah. <laughs> to do? To do Ironman South Africa. Amazing. But, when was uh, the last time you did that? We can't jinx it. 2019. This race has been cancelled on me three times. Mm-hmm. And the last time it was cancelled on me was... No, the first time it was cancelled on me was two weeks before. And we are two weeks before right now. Yeah. So we jinx nothing. I will celebrate slightly when we get on the plane. And I'll celebrate once again when I register. Pack your bike. I will be packing my bike in a bomb-proof bag. <laughs> if anyone knows what happened in Estonia, mm. still waiting for Emirates to, to do a payout. So if anyone that works at Emirates, let me know. And uh, yeah, we're close. We're very close. And actually having Shane's workshop last week has helped me now because the taper phase, you're obviously doing less. Yeah, But instead of doing less and thinking, I feel like I should be doing more on my shorter runs or whatever, I'm, I'm really thinking technically what I'm doing. And that's helping me with in terms of tapering because I'm like, okay, I have a real good purpose to this. And uh, I think it's a, and some nice little things that he mentions in there that I'm just sticking in my back pocket, ready, ready for when I get onto the run. Let's, let's finish with a the statistic then. So I told you my carbohydrate intake, we figured it out for my ultra. You don't need to share it if you don't want to, but what is your planned carbohydrate intake for Ironman South Africa? Uh, I, I will be working towards 90 grams on the bike, certainly the first half, um, because, and, and we will do a show on this, by the way, people are asking me about what I'm learning from Super Sapiens. Mm. Um, the fact is, I just don't know enough yet about what I have learned. I'll know more post-South Africa, and I will do more of a show then on it. Um, but what I'm learning is when I swim, I go really hypoglycemic. So very low. Um, okay. And that's because swimming is, is for me, because I'm not so efficient in it. I'm using a lot of type two muscle fibers. So I'm really burning through the glycogen when I'm swimming. So after an hour's swim, my blood sugar is tanked through the floor. Um, so for me, getting refueled on the bike early on is going to be key. So 90 grams an hour is what I've been working on. And then I will, in the second half of the bike, that'll look more like around 70. And then on the run, um, 60 to 70 grams per hour as well. Perfect. Good. Yeah. Can't wait. I'm so excited. I know. But calm. <laughs> but calm. <laughs> oh, dear. Good. So Good. I will take over next week. And then the following week, we'll have some feedback from you. On- I'll be uh, on a winery. Absolutely hammered. So it'll be a great <laughs> podcast. Do you know what we should do? Just give you and Boz free reign for an hour just to record what you're talking about. That's yeah. it. Fly We're doing wall. a winery tour for six days post-race. Oh my goodness. It's going to be next level. 
Good. All right, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Rob will be back next week and I will speak to you guys very soon. If you've got any questions for the show, please email them in endurance at innerflight.com. And something that you can do that really will help us and it will take you less than a minute is head to whatever platform you listen to this podcast on and please give us a rate and a review and then share it to someone that you think it would benefit. Yes. Lovely. Bye. Bye.